This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. If you feel overwhelmed, imagine how your poor reader will feel. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. I'm Kim Skorupski, and guess who's back on the podcast today? We have Dr. Donna Vogel, my dear friend and colleague from Johns Hopkins. She now does freelance work in career development and skill building. She was the former director of the Professional Development Office, and she's uh, given us lots of great advice already on applying for funding, views from an ex-insider, how to navigate professional societies and networking, how to turbocharge your presentations, and she's back. Donna, how are you, and what are you going to share with us today? Hey, Kim, it is great to be back with you and your listeners, and today we're going to talk about what I call getting that paper off the ground. Uh Lots of times the most difficult part in writing manuscript for publication is just getting started. So I'm going to give you some highlights of the workshop that I give that should help lower those barriers, lower that activation energy, and give you a step-by-step way to get through that difficult part and get moving. I do want to preface that just by saying that some of this is previously published in a commentary piece that I wrote with my colleagues Jim Gould and Raphael Luna that appeared in Nature Immunology in 2014 called Writing Well, Lowering the Barriers to Success, and that's volume 15, pages 695 to 97 for those who care to look up the citation and learn more from what some of my, some of my colleagues had to say on this subject. And we, we, give, I, we give that handout when I, in my grant writing groups in the specific games speed review session. So it is a very mm-hmm. valuable piece. So I'm glad you're referencing it. And I can't wait to hear the advice in this snippet that you're going to give to us. Go ahead. Terrific. Well, if you heard the turbocharger presentations snippet, what this will follow is some similar principles. The most important one is that if you understand what a paper is for, and if you understand what the parts of a paper are for, it's much easier to write them well. And similar to giving presentations about your research, and again, this is primarily for a research paper, there are two sets of reasons why you're going to write a paper. They are both science-related, that is related to content, and career-related. Because, of course, we're scientists, so it is our job to disseminate knowledge, to advance our field, and to allow others to build off of our results. At the same time, publishing is invariably the currency of your career. It's how you're measured, it's how you get visibility, and it's also how you demonstrate independence from a previous mentor, and it's how you demonstrate collaboration with people that you choose to represent as collaborators. And since I'm a list maker, I made you a list of 
points, highlights, if you will, from the sorts of things that I'd like to talk about in more depth. The first one, not surprisingly, is start with a question. You always start with a research question. It may very well be a hypothesis, not always. But you want to be thinking about writing before you even start the work. Next, as you do the work, as you begin the experiments, as you begin the field study, whatever it is you're doing, be thinking about figures. Don't do the work and then go back to the data and say, okay, now I'm going to make the figures. Have the figures in your head, even sketched out. You can sketch out the figures Uh before you have the data and imagine what they will look like when you have the data. That really helps. Number three, and this is something you may not be thinking about early, or maybe you are, and that's choose the right journal. Uh And there are all sorts of factors that go into that, but it's primarily who's going to be reading this paper, who is the audience going to be, although there may be other factors that come into that, like are there timing issues, are there format issues that will guide you in the choice of your journal, but there are things you can do to pick a journal where your paper is going to be a good fit, and it's not only reading the uh, instructions to authors. Of course, you're going to do that, but they don't tell you the whole story. You also want to read the instructions to reviewers, which you might not realize are available in many cases just online. You can find them. So read what the editors are telling the reviewers to look for. But here's another one. Look at the last few issues of the journal you're considering and see if they publish work like yours frequently or just every now and then. Because they may tell you in the instructions for authors, oh, yeah, we publish on this topic, but if they only do it every now and then, your chances of getting accepted are lower than if they publish topic yours all the time. Oh my gosh, that is so smart. I've never, of course, I always read the instructions to authors. I have never looked for or thought about instructions to reviewers. That is brilliant. And then, of course, I always look at the last issue or two to make sure, okay, yeah, key terms, it looks like, you know, this would be a fit, but I had not thought about, you know, the frequency or regularity on that, so that's another great idea. All righty. Another thing you need to settle early, and this ought to be a no-brainer, but unfortunately it's not, authorship. And I could talk for a whole hour on authorship. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that now, but... Decide ahead of time who the authors are likely to be and in what order so that you're not in the middle of an authorship dispute while you're submitting because that is way more mess than you need. Okay, so now that you've sort of dealt with some of the political issues up front, what do you do? How do you actually get started now that you've done the work? The first thing you do is you assemble your results, Uh organize what you have found out, and then identify your message. That is a little harder than assembling your results, but it's critical. 
one, exactly one message, no more, no less. Okay, let, let, can I pause you here for a second? Because this is important. Yeah. Identify the message, one message. And mm -hmm. tell me in your mind how this relates uh, directly or indirectly to the question or hypothesis. Are you implying that maybe my hypothesis or question may not be associated directly with my uh, message? Au contraire. Oh. It is precisely the answer to your question that provides the message. Okay. The message is nothing more and nothing less than the answer to your question. Well, and, now, now I'm wondering how... This this is really intriguing. I know I don't want to spend too much time, but we'll maybe do it a different talk, so I won't spend too much time here. But uh, what if I have a boring question? And is because that just made me think. Well, what if my message is like, yeah, it's associated. Yeah, it's it's it it's a uh, triggers or there's a trend. But then so what? I mean, it, this probably gets to the bigger, deeper question of you better darn well have a an interesting question that leads mm -hmm. to something important. So. My my worry about that, you know, focusing the message is, what if it's like, nope, it didn't work, it didn't happen, it's that's not what we, not at all what we thought. So can you tell us how um, we don't get ourselves too depressed if like there's a null finding, or if we think, well, that's kind of a boring message. Okay, I've got two sort of answers to that. Okay, one is what may have happened is your data were not interpretable that you set up the experiments or set up the studies in such a way that you got a bunch of data, mm -hmm. but in the final analysis, and I choose that phrase deliberately, mm -hmm. they don't yield a clear answer. So that's part one. Part two is maybe you should work those results into something like a review or a book chapter uh -huh. rather than an original article. Got it. Yep. Yep. Awesome. I love it. The message. Okay, getting started. Think about my results, and I think about what will be my take-home point. What's the single mm -hmm. most important message? Got it. Continue, please. Because everything else is going to flow from your message. Mm -hmm. The first thing that will guide, you will use it to guide you, is look at your results now in relationship to your answer, in relationship to your message, and thin down what you're going to write into those things that provide the evidence for your answer. You may have stuff that you have learned that you want to write up, but don't put it in this paper if it doesn't address getting to your answer. Uh-huh. You will be writing other papers. You can use it somewhere else. That's the hard thing because some we design these surveys or questionnaires or studies and all these variables, and you feel like you want to, ta-da, put everything out there. And then that's when we get overwhelmed and trying uh -huh. to make these spurious arguments and kind of these uh, trails that meander here and there because we feel like, but I spend so much time collecting all those data points and I want to include everything. And so I like that. Trim it down. Don't panic. The data will be there. You know, a friend of ours, you know, Dave Usum, he talks about lumpers oh, yeah. or splitters, mm. you know, lumping into like a big 
chunk, the big hope diamond, or splitting things into publishable units. So I like your idea of thinning down, but you're not throwing it away. You're just paring mm-hmm. down to the essence of this, but you're maintaining, you know, other little chunks and other little pieces of gems for subsequent mm-hmm. papers. Right. You're just tucking it into another file. And Kim, you're absolutely right about wanting to tell the world everything. Of course, we want to share everything we've done with the world. It's our work. That's our baby. We just want to tell the world. But you have to resist that temptation because, and you use the word overwhelmed. If you feel overwhelmed, imagine how your poor reader will feel. Okay, so that's not something you do not want to overwhelm the reader. Okay. Now let's talk about the sections. Okay. We've kind of taken the big 10,000 foot view here. Let's hone in on the individual parts of the paper. Some sections will be easier to write than others. And what that means is they will require less decision making. What do I mean by that? Well, let's back up a second. Start by writing down the parts of the paper. Okay. Yeah, just the sections, the introduction, the methods, the results, the discussion. So write it down. Uh And then as you have that on your screen, insert under those sections some subheadings about what you think is going to be involved Mm -hmm. in telling your story. Now... What have you got? Right. You've got an outline. Mm-hmm. Hooray. Well, that was easy. Uh-huh. Well, that's a really simple first step. Now, look at the sections and think about which sections require more thinking, require more decision making, mm-hmm. and which don't. Yeah. Which sections pretty much write themselves? Well, probably the easiest, the one that involves the least decision making, is your methods, because you know what you did. Uh-huh. So start with the methods. Right. It's easy. Then work your way up. And the for next- a lot of us, if you're, if, you know, we've done any kind of research, biomedical, you know, medicine or biomedical research, we've had to do an IRB, human subjects consent form, perhaps, mm. and we had to put some text and describing what we intended to do in that uh, consent form and that IRB process. So... I always start by like opening that and reminding myself, what was I going to do here? What did I say I was going to do? And uh, my instruments, my measures, my variables, the analyses, I just copy that. And then I at least, you know, plunk something down to have it pasted. And I, to me, that's a quick way of uh, getting that section filled out because I've already done it for a, the consent process. Mm-hmm. Right. And in your paper, Remember, every section has a job to do, and even your method section has a job to do. The conventional wisdom is that it's to allow other people to duplicate your results. Well, not everybody who reads this is going to be trying to replicate your results. The underlying purpose of a method section is to show your reader that you're in command of the methods that you picked the right methods and that you used them appropriately and that in turn supports the validity of your findings. So it's really about your credibility. Uh-huh. So that's what you start with. Then you move to the section that takes the next 
least amount of decision making because you're you've already done it and that's the results. Okay. You've decided what's going in. So you show your evidence. The results are there to support your answer. Mm-hmm. Then you go to the introduction. Right. And that's the importance, the significance, why it needed to be done. And then you get to the discussion, which is hard because mm-hmm. it takes a lot of thinking, a lot of decision-making. You need to know the literature because the purpose of the discussion is to put your answer in context. That is to say, why the reader should believe you and what's better perhaps about what you found compared to what existed before or showing that there were holes that needed to be filled or flaws with previous work that your work has remedied. Others who have worked in this field before, will you'll either agree or disagree with them, and you have to deal with that. And you may use that section to tell the reader what to do with your answer, but you would certainly use it to give the impact or implications yeah. for the field. Yeah. And and this is going to be messy. Yeah. You're going to write it rough. That's fine. But get something down. Yep. And then you can go back. Mm-hmm. And when you've got that rough draft in place, you can go forward. It's so much easier to edit than it is to get the words down in the first place. That's but right. there's three three steps to that. Three steps to the revision. And since this is really about getting it off the ground, I'm just going to allude to them very briefly. But the first is revise for content. That is, have you put in what needs to be in? Have you left out what needs to be left out? Mm-hmm. And is it in the right order? Next, you revise for, for the writing style. Are the paragraphs organized properly, the sentence structure, the word choice? Mm-hmm. And then finally, proofread for typos, proofread for grammar, and don't just use the spell checker, use your eyeballs, and even better, enlist the eyeballs of somebody else who is not used to seeing it so much, because you're likely to miss things since you have spent an awful lot of time with this piece of writing. Yeah, I sometimes, I will read, I talk to myself a lot, and I I read to myself a lot, so, Mm -hmm. because my we deceive ourselves all the time. Our eyeballs will, like as you're saying, will sk- I'll just skip over the fact that I have two thes, you know, the, the. Mm-hmm. And then until I'm reading it out loud, I'll say, oh my gosh, what the world was I thinking? Or I clearly yeah. had started writing a sentence a certain way and it got so enmeshed in my prose that it ended it up in a different way. And I said, oh my gosh, I just completely, you know, repeated myself here. But because my, my brain was... Uh, racing ahead of me. And then so until I stop Mm -hmm. and literally start speaking it or reading it out loud, that's when I'm like, here, wait a minute, something's wrong here. So I'll, I'll even stop myself when my eyeballs are tired and just start reading it out loud. You're absolutely right, Kim. Reading it out loud is a great tool for picking up things that you might just breeze past if you were just looking at the words. Mm -hmm. You know, Donna, I'm I'm curious if you have any words of wisdom for me. I'm struggling with the paper now, and and you're making me think. When you talked about, you know, we do methods first, then results, introduction, and discussion. And we all, you know, we know that that discussion section is hard. You're setting, you're putting things in context. And you said, this is 
where we work hard to make sure that um, the reader should believe me or convince them that they should believe me. Do you have any thoughts about this is something I'm struggling with where I just I'm working on a paper now and a reviewer said, so it's about late career faculty members. It's a spinoff of a survey of um, my colleagues and I, the group on faculty affairs did looking at full-time faculty members age 55 and older across the country. And hmm. we had added, I threw in a couple questions in the survey about caregiving status. And huh. I was curious about in our older age for late career faculty members, how many of us are providing care for other people, parents or spouses or neighbors, and then that care related caregiving burden. Well, in the discussion section, you know, thinking about this, I, I was trying to say things like, well, you know, the implications, why we need to know about this is because there are all these issues going on in academic medicine related to burnout and the lack of joy in medicine. And so it's kind of like going on that tangent of um, burnout. And the mm-hmm. one reviewer said to me, you know, this kind of you're going off on a tangent on burnout. You didn't measure burnout in the survey. Mm-hmm. You you didn't really talk about the literature in the introduction on um, on burnout. You didn't mm-hmm. really set the stage for burnout. So you're talking about late career faculty members thinking about retirement and the fact that you threw in these questions. You're curious about what is how does this weigh in on their ideas about retiring if they're providing care for someone else and and so. In that discussion section, that was my challenge to say, you know, why is this important? Nobody's looked at this. Yeah, I'm telling the reader you should believe me. But, you know, do you have any thoughts or recommendations to maybe other people out there who say, well, what in the world do I say in the discussion? How do I, you know, make sure that this this work is elevated to the stage of importance that I think it is without going too far afield of, Someone saying, well, that was quite a leap, Skrupski. How did you get to burnout? You weren't measuring burnout. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm still kind of wondering where is where are the confidence intervals, the, the boundaries where we can kind of say, hey, maybe related to this, you might want to think about that because of this yeah. without people going, hang on a minute, you're really pushing it there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's difficult for me because this isn't my field, but – I would say you never want to say we don't know anything about something because you're in you're introducing a blank space and that's uncomfortable mm. for a reader or for a reviewer. So whenever possible if you can link it to something where we do know something about it, something in a a parallel situation or in a related question where somebody has found something it just makes it easier for the reviewer and the reader to make that transition. I see. As you know, uh, this group found this in that and similarly. Uh-huh. And it, it gives you a little bit more of a leg to stand on. So uh, is this what you're saying? So you're, are you saying that maybe uh, blank space, like like I'm, I'm teasing the readership with this concept of that this is important. We need to know that A is prevalent because it may be associated with F. I'm not sure, but the blank piece or the teaser is problematic unless I could then mm-hmm. say, and guess what? When you look at F, sure enough, some people have shown that there's a little bit of A maybe getting in there. So in my instance, maybe had I done some work to say in the burnout literature, lo and behold, somebody mm-hmm. has looked at it by older age 
Yeah. And so there, and I see it, you just helped me figure that out. If I were to, to find that burnout in academic mm-hmm. faculty by age, I could then maybe fill up a little bit of that empty space by saying, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't measure burnout, but but Donna Vogel et al. looked at burnout among late career faculty members and found that it was higher. We mm-hmm. don't know if it's associated with caregiving, but we found la, la, la. So I see what you're saying. So that you're kind of offering more substance versus mm-hmm. this kind of just blank now you're annoying the reader because they're you just threw something out willy-nilly and they, they don't know how you got how you made that leap that's right and it's not only that it's a hole that it's it's a blank space but you also never talked about why that part was important uh-huh. yeah. and if you just build it into the discussion as and I'm gonna I'm gonna revert back to my biomedical language because that's how I think. It's that well, we found that this was similar in the rat, and the rat and the mouse are have similar lung physiological are, are, are similar physiologically, and so that's supportive. But if you know, if we had been found in that gerbil, the gerbil is really different, and so you really can't compare. So you you want to find something that's in a system that's close enough to what you're looking at that you can use the parallel findings as filling in that space. I see. Wow, you just made that connection for me. That is really amazing. Love it. Wow. So I don't want to cut you off arbitrarily, uh, Dr. Vogel, but is is this um, the conclusion of your snippet for our faculty? It is. It I've is. reached the end of my list. Well, this is wonderful. I hope you all enjoy listening to Dr. Donna Vogel talking about how to get the paper off the ground. Think about the content, your career-related components of starting with a question. I just I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, be, be thinking about your figures and graphs ahead of time. Choose the right journal. Read the instructions to authors and instructions to reviewers. Look at the last several few issues. See the regularity of which your your topic comes up. Authorship. Who's going to be on the paper and what order? And then we talked about how do you get started. Nuts and bolts. Start with methods, then results, then intro, then discussion, and don't do what I'm doing and have big empty holes. Uh, make sure your reader <laughs> believes you. Well, folks, again, that was Dr. Donna Vogel. She's on LinkedIn. That's Donna Vogel, V-O-G-E-L. You can reach her also via her email address, doctor, that's D-R dot Donna, D-O-N-N-A dot Vogel, B-O-G-E-L at gmail.com. Or go to facultyfactory.org on the website and uh, shoot me an email, and I will put you in touch with Dr. Vogel. Thank you, Donna. A pleasure as always. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.